With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, Assistant Editor at Spike, and today we have a Battle of Ideas special with Claire Fox introducing the hot topics of this year's festival, Andrew Doyle on satire, and Nick Gillespie on what's really going on in the Rust Belt. The Battle of Ideas is taking place this weekend. It's the Institute of Ideas annual festival at the Barbican. Spiked writers will be there, joining world-known speakers and members of the public to discuss and debate current affairs and political trends. And what a year for it. We've had sexual harassment scandals, the Grenfell Tower fire, terrorist attacks, elections. All of this will be up for discussion at this year's battle, along with conversations about art and culture, tech, education, immigration, automation, you name it. To kick us off and to introduce the key themes of this year's festival, I caught up with Claire Fox, Director of the Institute of Ideas. So Claire, it's an exciting time of the year this weekend. The IOI hosts its annual Battle of Ideas, a weekend of public discussion and debate where free speech is allowed. So do you think with the growing trend for censorship, having a space for free speech has become contentious? It's so ironic, isn't it? When we first started the festival 13 years ago, having a slogan, free speech allowed, caused some bemusement. Now people say, wow, that's so unusual. And you realise that free speech is genuinely felt to be under pressure by people. And they understand that just having a strapline of free speech allowed is quite a radical position. Who'd have thought it? So I think it's very important, as much as anything, just to give people the space to be able to make their thoughts known, not always have the pat answers, you know, sometimes say what's on their mind, try out and experiment with ideas, not always having to watch their P's and Q's in the politically correct sense of P's and Q's. In the build-up to the Battle of Ideas, there's been so many examples of people being called out, calls for them to be sacked and so on because they've said the wrong thing either recently or in the past, made a joke in the wrong context. People, therefore, need something like the Battle of Ideas in order to be able to be free from that kind of tyranny so that we can look at some of the very, very serious political challenges we face without watching over our shoulder for the thought police to clamp down on us. And now the battle covers everything from health to arts and culture, housing to international politics. But let's talk about some of the key themes this year, one of which is a discussion on diversity, which is obviously a very hot topic at the moment and something that a lot of people are talking about. Do you think that diversity is a good in itself? Is it necessary to talk about diversity today? It trips off the tongue so easily to say that, of course, I support diversity. You would seem to be a complete maverick to go against it. But as I was mentioning about free speech, you know, that people, what people don't mean is diversity of opinions. And so you then start to realise that diversity has become, on the one hand, a rather meaningless box-ticking exercise. It's also a demand that categorise people into types, because what they mean is, 
have you got enough women? Have you got enough BAME? How many LGBTQ people have you speaking? And so on and so forth. And when they say diversity, they mean types, not diverse opinions and so on and so forth. We've seen the importance of this in relation to a debate that's happening at the moment about universities. Oxford University at the moment is under a huge amount of pressure for not having a diverse enough student population. And the focus is how we can change Oxford University to ensure that you have diverse students. This is one of the most important universities in the world in terms of the broadening out of ideas and knowledge and the expansion of what humanity knows. And people have managed to turn it into a kind of positive discrimination scheme and aren't thinking about whether we have diverse minds who can tackle some of the huge intellectual questions of the time or uh, the kind of people who will really appreciate um, having the best that's known and thought passed on to them so they can develop it. Instead, people are again reduced to diverse in the sense of there aren't enough black faces, there aren't enough women. Now, of course, having said all that, anything that would smack of discrimination um, is something I've fought against all my life and nobody is interested in keeping people out. But sadly, diversity doesn't take people seriously. It treats them as mere objects of their identity. And as a consequence, we wanted to explore whether saying we want a diverse workforce or a diverse university or diversity is a good per se actually is anything more than a slogan, but actually whether it dangerously means that you miss sight of what you're really interested in. And another topic speakers will look at is post-truth, which is something that has become a phenomenon post-Brexit and with the election of Trump. You've got people talking about fake news. There was a huge panic about fake news quite recently. I mean, lies, alternative facts, all of this stuff to describe post-truth. Do you think that it means we have a problem with truth? I think we do have a problem with truth, but not always as it's presently understood. Uh, to note, however, I did fall for a fake news story yesterday, so I'm not trying to deny that these phenomena exist. I thought that the Austrian government had banned uh, George Soros's operations happening. I checked it out. It was obviously true because everyone was saying it until it dawned on me that when I mean everyone was saying it, just the people that um, I searched on Twitter, and of course it was uh, an echo chamber. And I fell for it. For a few hours, I was shocked. So... There is such a thing as a sort of genuine glibness about truth that is creating the capacity to just make things up and have them come alive on social media and believed by millions of people. However, I think the problem about truth is so much deeper than the panic, and that's what it's become, around me falling for a social media made-up story. Because actually, truth is now very contested. I mean, I, and it has been for some time, but it's become more fashionable. So to use an example, in academia, and we've actually got a, a session on the academic uh, roots of post-truth, in academia, postmodernism has denied that there's any such thing as truth with a capital T for many years. And the whole kind of post-structuralist movement amongst academics might appear to have something that's got no uh, purchase beyond the kind of uh, ivory towers. But actually, it's given intellectual respectability to relativism. And that's one of the trends which has chipped away at the notion that there is such a thing as truth. On the other hand, in the media, all of the people who are now 
you know, denouncing post-truth. They themselves said that the search for truth was a mythological pursuit. There was people who argued that, you know, it's ridiculous to, for example, aspire to objectivity in journalism, that one shouldn't kid oneself that the BBC were, just to use an example of public broadcasters, could ever possibly be above a story, that everybody had their own truths that they brought to the story, that we were all attached to different truths and so on. So they themselves popularised, made respectable the notion of relativistic truth. And now those very people who sold the pass on truth, now panicking because effectively people like Trump supporters have made some hay out of the post-truth thing and it means that mainstream media is not believed, for example, um, and a lot of academics are ignored and just uh, their, their, their evidence are, are, are treated with contempt. Those very same people now come back and reclaim truth and they do it through of all things, trying to lay down the law with scientific stats and turn truth into a technocratic matter, which will never win the hearts and minds of anybody. So whilst they've given up the pursuit of truth in the broadest sense philosophically, um, given up in, in, in believing in the rational human being looking for truth, they also want to impose their truth or a truth that can only be validated by expert themselves in fact and their value system so i think that whole argument's going to be a really important one to pursue throughout the festival now lots of students come to the battle every year and one of the keynote discussions is about cottonwool society censorship in universities this idea that students need to be wrapped up and protected and given trigger warnings and safe spaces and there seems to be a bit of a pushback on the idea that students need to be provided with a safe space I mean you've written a book called I found that offensive which looked at the phenomena of the snowflake generation and what was happening uh, in academia at universities in relation to censorship do you think that we're starting to move away from the hysteria of attacks of free speech on campus, which, you know, over the past years have become quite remarkable? Or do you think that there is still an underlying problem with free speech at university? Well, I I think that the difficulty, as the public debate, and particularly the media, have started to highlight some of the more ludicrous aspects of the assaults on free speech, such as trigger warnings on Shakespeare, which was revealed last week. And there's there's a kind of tone of lampooning Generation Snowflake with a, you know, it's a bit like PC gone mad. This is like the youth have gone mad. What's wrong with them? And obviously, it's easy to lampoon. You know, when when um, Oxford University bans a student union, or when uh, Linda Bellos, the first militant out black lesbian, is banned as uh, transphobic from Cambridge, or you know, disinvited, you can see that you can make fun and mock, and a lot of students themselves distance themselves from that extreme examples but I get anxious when people tell me oh it's okay now there's a big rebellion because actually and this is one of the things I wrote about in my book and which I hope will reflect in a bit of a deeper way at the festival the battle of ideas is I think that the problem starts much earlier in terms of this idea that actually from an early age we have low expectations of what young people can cope with so although it doesn't appear to be related to censorship There are endless campaigns at the moment about campaigns and policy discussions and interventions around the idea that young people are suffering increased levels of mental health problems. A huge range of uh, the vicissitudes of life are interpreted through the prism of uh, mental health problems. 
interventions such as mindfulness through to therapy in schools actually, I think, really chips away at the resilience of the young from a very early age and also tells them that harm is a much broader concept than that previously encompassed by somebody like J.S. Mill, some physical threat, that it's much more of a, a, a psychological threat. Now, by the time you kind of grow up and go to university, you really deeply imbued all of these things. Is that cultural uh, way that we make people feel under threat that expresses itself, I think, in the kind of hiding in safe spaces at universities, which then in turn become free speech issues. Now, if we only deal with the more superficial, easy to lampoon stories around trigger warnings, then I think we only touch the surface and we don't actually tackle what's really at the heart of the problem. Well, finally then, Claire, why do you think that promoting open discussion, encouraging free debate and defending free speech is still so important today? One of the things that's really struck me over recent years is that we are losing the ability to have debate and discussion and we impugn our opposition, people we don't agree with, with the most malign motives and we set up far too many straw men. Now, I think that's true of people I agree with and myself as much as people I disagree with. It is easy to get into one's own echo chamber. We all feel exasperated with the way that people don't understand us and so it's easy to lash out at them but I think that in order to be serious about politics at the moment we have to go beyond uh, caricaturing each other we have to uh, take ourselves seriously enough to put our ideas on the line for critique and take our peers seriously enough to say that we will uh, criticize them when we disagree with them rather than either uh, banning them on the one hand or in fact, caricaturing them on the other. So why I think it's important at the moment, we live in extraordinarily important times. History is being made. Brexit, which I find exciting, has set change in motion in the United Kingdom. But we know as we look around that what's called populism has seen a rejection of the old post-war arrangements, changes in the air, but it's scary. Change is not something where you kind of go, yes, come on because we don't know what's going to happen. And it's in a way in our gift. And I celebrate Brexit, but I look at the people doing the negotiating on behalf of the Tories and I, you know, want to scream. So the battle of ideas becomes a place where rather than screaming or rather than kind of getting scared on our own by the real challenges that we face, we can actually discuss how we can make history, make this historical period Um, have a different outcome than that fatalistically decided from on top. Uh, We have the chance to do this ourselves, so let's talk about it. That was Claire Fox introducing this year's Battle of Ideas. Now for our next guest. Andrew Doyle is a comedian. As well as his own stand-up work, he is the co-writer for the viral sensation Jonathan Pye, that satirical, pissed-off news reporter you may have seen popping up on your Facebook. Andrew knows a lot about satire, and he argues that today it's under threat. How can you poke fun at an oversensitive audience and live to tell the tale? So, how detrimental is today's climate of censorship for comedy? And in a so-called post-truth world of fake news, is there space for satire anymore? I managed to persuade Andrew to call me from a mountaintop in Italy to talk to me ahead of his debate this weekend. So Andrew, you're chairing a discussion at this year's Battle of Ideas on satire, and you've also written a lot for Spiked on how censorship is threatening comedy. 
In today's oversensitive climate, do you think that satire is dead? I wouldn't say it's dead, but I'd certainly say it's more difficult uh, in many ways. Satire depends on, on, on people not being too sensitive because it does delve into areas that are tricky. Um, and also it depends on people not just taking everything on face value, as all, all jokes do in many ways. If you're determined just to hear certain key words and assume that a satirist means exactly what they say or a comedian means exactly what they say, then ultimately you won't get the point of the joke or of the, or of the satire. Uh, you see this happening again and again with, with, with Charlie Hebdo. People say every, every few months or so you get an article complaining about the, the front cover of Charlie Hebdo because obviously the people who criticise it generally don't read beyond the front cover. They just look at the picture and make a judgment. And those judgments depend on people just assuming that Charlie Hebdo are saying literally what the illustration appears to depict. If, you, if you're saying that, means you, you simply don't understand what satire is or how it works. And I think that's, that's a big problem. Now, fake news is obviously a problem for satire. And I'm thinking about sites like The Onion and The Daily Mash, which are satirical, which are piss-takey, are now being construed as fake news or being taken seriously. Are you worried about this blurring of the line between truth and lies and gossip, fake news and satire? I find it really interesting. I think part of the problem is that so much of the news that we see nowadays is self-satirising. To satirise Donald Trump, all you would have to do is cut and paste his own tweet. At that stage, it's difficult, isn't it, to, to satirise anything when, when, when the object of your satire is inherently ridiculous already. You see this with uh, uh, the philosopher A.C. Grayling, whose tweets now read like Donald Trump's tweets. So they read like a, a teenager having a tantrum. And there's a parody uh, Twitter account set up called A.C. Wailing. And if you were to just read the tweets, although they are simply exaggerations of what Grayling himself has said, it's, it would be difficult at first glance to distinguish between the two. And I, I think that is, that, that's a problem. The other problem, of course, and I do have some sympathy with it, is that when you're on Facebook, uh, news stories come up and they all look the same, don't they? And so it, it, it's obvious why sometimes you would assume that a fake news story could be the, the real thing. And often I find myself in a situation now where I normally want to check to see whether it's reputable or not. I, 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 there's so many websites out there. And there are so many different news outlets. Inevitably, we're all at one point going to be tricked by a satirical, uh, a satirical piece, although the object is not always trickery. Do you think a lot of comedians are worried about the state of censorship in relation to their work? Or do you think that there's a level of self-censorship among the comedy circle that is uh, not helping the situation? I think self-censorship is, is a real problem because ultimately you do have to get on in the industry. And if you are uh, perceived to be a certain type of comic, I mean, often if you are going in certain areas, you, you will automatically be lumped in as a, as a right-wing comic, even if that's absolutely not the case. And ultimately people do want to get on and they want to be booked uh, by promoters. They want to get on television. And the best way to do that really is to not have an opinion about anything, I think. So I think self-censorship is a problem and the reality that, that more and more uh, audiences are willfully perhaps misunderstanding the, the point of the joke and, and merely finding offence where, the, the, where there really isn't anything offensive about what, what you're saying. Often when people are offended by comedy, it is because they've misunderstood and sometimes that is willful, I think, uh, and it's more to do with the political agenda. But yes, I think you're absolutely right that self-censorship uh, is an inevitable a corollary of what of of this this culture that we're living in now, where where anybody who says something that could be even slightly perceived as offensive is then pilloried online. I mean, we saw it this week with 
with Clive Lewis, didn't we? I mean, a comment, a comment made obviously in jest, quite obviously in jest. Everybody present took it as a joke. And yet we've had people piling in very opportunistically, I would say, uh, mostly from the conservative side or indeed the, uh, the Blairite left to attack him, just to, to take the opportunity to attack him. Now, Andrew, you co-wrote Jonathan Pye, which has been a huge success. And part of that comedy is uh, taking the piss out of the very shouty news reporter, perhaps taking the piss out of um, the kind of binary opposition that sometimes people find themselves in in relation to politics and the news. He's a very gruff, very uh, opinionated man. What kind of space does Jonathan Pye fill in this kind of... Uh, panic about fake news and uh, a lot of the times what, what Jonathan Pye does is he does express a kind of uh, a partisan view in a very in a very angry way, and I think that does partly reflect the greater polarisation in politics generally. Whether that's a, a good thing or bad thing politically, I don't know. But from Jonathan Pye's perspective, it's, it's it's satirical. I suppose the problem would be is if you were in a, a political figure or a, a, a journalist and you were adopting a, a similar approach which i think is happening i think i think things are becoming more polarized and, and in order for things to be propagated on the internet you're more likely to have things spread if you if you take an extreme view well finally then andrew why is it important to laugh at ourselves to be able to handle mockery why is it important to defend satire today i think if you look at history you'll see that figures of authority have always genuinely feared satirists and comedians if you're laughing at something if you're not taking it seriously you, you undermine that authority it's a really really powerful tool and it's a much more powerful tool than violence or, 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 well, particularly if you look at, for instance, the approach to the right in America and the, the spawning of Antifa, the idea that if you beat people up, you're, you're more likely to dissuade them from their perspective strikes me as nonsense. A much more effective way, as we've seen, is, is ridicule to make fun of them and undermine them that way. That was Andrew Doyle on the state of satire. Now for our final guest. Trump voters are still characterised as ignorant, often redneck racists. It's a stereotype that won't seem to go away. And while American liberals can't seem to get over the fact that their fellow countrymen voted for the Donald, no one seems to be trying to understand why. Race is a topic that keeps cropping up, with recent protests in places like Charlottesville creating a caricature of white, angry Americans looking to turn back the clock on racial equality. What's going on? Who are these Rust Belt voters who everyone keeps talking about? And what's the next step for Americans who want to stop panicking about Trump and do something political? To find out, I gave Nick Gillespie, editor-in-chief of Reason TV, a call, just before he caught his flight to come to speak at the Battle of Ideas. Well, Nick, first of all, I want to just kick off on this idea where you hear a lot of people talking about the Rust Belt, Rust Belt voters. Tell us, who are they and why did you think that they voted for Trump? Well, you know, it's funny because we're talking about them as if they're like cavemen or Neanderthals walking among Cro-Magnon or something. And, you know, people who live in the Rust Belt, uh, you know, it's it's the industrial states ranging from Maine and the northeast of America over towards, I guess, like Minnesota uh, and then down through you know, basically the uh, upper third or quarter of the country. And uh, they're like the rest of America, I mean, except that they perceive that their um, main economic function was industrialism uh, and that it's dropped out in the past five or ten years. This is based on a complete lie um, and misunderstanding of the American economy to begin with. The Rust Belt as a, as a concept went back to the late 60s and early 70s. Industrialism as a percentage of the American workforce, uh, people working in factories peaked in 1943 and it's been in a straight line decline uh, since then. 
So what we're talking about are people who are in economically depressed areas that have been that way for decades, not because of trade policy, not because of immigration, but actually because of a lack of economic activity. And what you find with these people to a certain degree is that they tend to be socially conservative and economically populist. So they like things like trade barriers, but they also are against abortion. To the extent that it matters, they're against gay marriage or they're against um, any kind of change. And that's that's kind of their problem uh, is that they're stuck in an economy that hasn't existed for a long time. And I think somebody like Trump speaks to that because he's not really promise. He, he makes a brand, a grand promise of, oh, we're going to make America great again. But he doesn't really have any way to do that other than to say we're going to keep exports out uh, and we're going to keep things the way they are and go back to how they were 20 or 30 years ago, which really isn't a plan. At least he's talking to these people. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, Hillary Clinton lost the presidential election is she didn't even go to a couple of these states, you know, kind of at least acknowledge that these people existed. And hence, they voted against her after voting democratically in, in many elections. You often get two versions of Trump voters. Either they're this kind of embittered white working class bunch of people who are smarting from the loss of some kind of privilege or they're the left behind, the pathetic, the lost Americans. Is either of those characterizations true? I don't think that's what defines Trump voters. Um, And there is a group of kind of, uh, you know, I guess, white uh, middle and working class voters who feel like they've gotten a raw deal. You know, like most Americans are the most self-pitying people in in the world, probably, uh, or certainly they're way up there. Um, And these are people who feel like they've played by the rules and, you know, nothing's working for them. And, you know, most of that is just simply wrong when you look at economic statistics and and the quality of life and whatnot. But there is what what has happened, I think, is that we are stuck, at least in the United States, although I think this is true of the developed world and of Western Europe more broadly. We're stuck with a bunch of categories that are holdovers from the 20th century. They don't really make sense anymore and they don't really explain much uh, anymore. But we feel, you know, beholden to them. And this is where the race dimension in America plays out, where there's this sense that somehow blacks and Latinos who by every measure are doing far worse than, you know, uh, white people in America are somehow making these enormous strides uh, due to government intervention through affirmative action, through free welfare and Obama phones and things like this. And I think there's a certain amount of people in America who feel Like after we basically in the 21st century, we've been growing at historically low economic growth. And there's a sense that we're stagnating and people are looking for someone to blame. And in in America, traditionally, the people you blame are black people uh, for committing crime, uh, for not fitting in and immigrants. And in this case, that's why Trump made his, you know, when he ran for president within five minutes, he was talking about how Mexicans were rapists and drug dealers and criminals, uh, disease carrying. Uh, these are old, uh, stereotypes of, of immigrants and the face of immigration in America now is, is Mexican. Um, so you see in a very classic way when things start to go sideways, Americans, uh, look to scapegoat blacks and they look to scapegoat immigrants. And I, I think that's part of what Trump feeds into that in a very real way, um, because he doesn't have any vision of the future other than to say, we're going to get back to this vague era when he was younger, when everybody got along, even though that's actually not what was going on when he was younger. 
I know obviously there that you've outlined that there might still be problems in terms of racism in America, and that's certainly true. But do you think that there's an ugly side, a kind of racializing undertone to this panic about racism that really leads to an obsession with identity, an obsession with race that perhaps is quite unhelpful in this circumstance? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think part of the uh, rise in identity politics in America is being fueled by two things. And it's important to note that racial antipathy was growing, has been growing since even before Barack Obama was uh, elected president. It's growing at a time when most uh, most indicators show that uh, racial, uh, you know, racial and ethnic identity is less of a barrier to social improvement, to inclusion, to economic gains than ever before. And I think what we're seeing are, are two weird uh, kind of uh, developments. And one is that there is an industry in America of people who manage ethnic difference. Uh, and this is in the government, at colleges and universities. Uh, there are people who make a living by saying, okay, this person is this particular ethnic minority and they're going to be in this type of program that helps better them. I think those people are oftentimes recognizing that that program's rationale is is kind of becoming less and less clear over time because we are a more tolerant society. We are a more inclusive society at the same time, but they insist that even as things get better overall, that we need these programs more than ever. Uh, that helped create a white identity movement. And this is what I think Trump speaks to, uh, that somehow everybody's getting a free deal. Everybody's getting a hand up except good old white people. Uh, that's as equally stupid, uh, or actually it's even more so, I think. But then you, you get into this loggerheads where everybody is claiming that my, you know, some somehow through inclusion in a particular ethnic or minority group or even an ideological group, that that should give me a special platform from which I will get more money, more prestige, more status, more speaking time. Um, and it's it's a really sick dynamic because uh, in a society and particularly in a pluralist society, because it means you're not really making arguments. People are just speechifying one after another. And it comes down less to uh, the exercise of persuasion and much more the exercise of political power to structure relationships throughout all aspects of society. Well, finally then, Nick, I know that you have been very critical of Trump, as Spite has. I mean, I think we have struggled to agree with him on almost anything. But do you think that there's a positive kernel to this in the anti-establishment nature of the Trump vote? There are two things, at least, to think about Trump uh, that I think are positive. One is in many of his in, his appointees, and I'm thinking of people that run groups like the Federal Communications Commissions, which governs kind of uh, phone and telephony policy, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Food and Drug Administration. He's actually appointed people who are interested in deregulating these industries so that we're no longer using a framework, uh, you know, a kind of mental and policy framework from the 1950s, 60s, in the case of the FCC from the 1930s. Uh, that's great. And it's really good. Uh, you know, and it's it's these these are old edifices that should be pushed away and just like kind of uh, buried underground. Um, so he's doing some of that, uh, which is kind of interesting. But the uh, the other thing is that, you know, that fuck you to the uh, to the establishment, um, which was stunning. And it's like, I don't I don't agree with Trump on virtually any of his policies, but I do think it's bracing and it's positive to see the entire array of the political establishment, both right wing and left wing in America, completely impotent in the face of one of the most ridiculous figures in American and probably world political history. He won 
And I think he is the end of something. I think he's the end of the old order of the 20th century because he doesn't have any vision of the future. He only has a vision of restoring the past. And that past is delusional. You know, he is clearing out a lot of dead wood. And I think the real challenge in America is can people in either party or people across the political spectrum get back to a kind of enlightenment sense of ideals about, you know, where you simultaneously ensure universal kind of human, uh, common humanity while respecting individual differences, while allowing people to live however the fuck they want, as long as they're not really hurting other people and to let people innovate and experiment with how they want to structure their lives, their businesses, uh, you name it. And so in that sense, I'm, I'm optimistic that what comes after Trump will be better because I do, I think, uh, you know, and obviously this is happening in England, it's happening elsewhere around the world. Like people are just fed up with a tired, worn out post-World War II consensus of a kind of rule by uh, elites, by technocracy, by people who are smarter than you. The one thing that is great about Trump, I guess, is that he he makes it absolutely clear that people who run the government are not smarter than you. In fact, they are clearly more idiotic and dumber than you. And I think, you know, that's the challenge he presents those of us who are neither Republican nor Democrat to actually not to come up with an answer to him, but to transcend him and, and to create a more wide open world. That is what we see in the most interesting areas of, of culture and, and the economy. You can see Claire, Andrew, Nick and many more fantastic speakers at this year's Battle of Ideas this weekend. Tickets are available at thebattleofideas.org.uk. See you there. You've been listening to the Spiked Podcast. To get your daily dose of Spiked Opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed and if you'd like to help Spiked continue to thrive, be sure to make a donation. Thanks for listening.